There are some things that are impossible, straight out impossible. There's other things that are just very, very uh, improbable. Now, in a football game, okay, there are times where one team is, is down and it's the end of the game and there's a special play that they do which very often, you almost never actually works. But when it does, it's an amazing thing and people talk about it. So this is, a, you, you probably know what I'm talking about here, where the other team, they're down, they find themselves at the wrong end of the field, they're not in scoring uh, distance, and so this play, which has a special name, which you all know, uh, the quarterback scrambles for a little bit so that the receivers have time to uh, get down to the other end of the field as fast as they can, and then the quarterback uh, just throws it as hard as he can and just hopes that the receivers get into the end zone, uh, that the ball lands on one of uh, his receivers, and when it goes well, uh, touchdown, and it's amazing, and, but it is something that doesn't work very often. And this play, as you know, is called a, this is a Hail Mary. And I wonder sometimes, when we say the, the phrase Hail Mary, uh, what is the first thing that people think of? They might think Hail Mary, yeah, that, we know what that is. That's the football play. That's when, that's when you throw the bomb and you're desperate and uh, you, you hope that it somehow works. Well, we think, well, why is it called a Hail Mary? Well, this is a Protestant church. This is a Baptist church, so you might not know. And uh, it, I guess in a Baptist church, what would you call it? It would be like, a, we're going to throw a John 3.16 and try and get it in there. But it, it comes from uh, Catholic teaching. And I was raised Catholic. Okay, I grew up Catholic. I was an altar boy. So I learned, they taught me how to do the, the rosary. And part of this is you say the, the Hail Mary. Okay, and it goes, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. That might be the first time you've had a Baptist uh, pastor and to say that they Hail Mary, okay? Uh, I don't know. So how, anybody else here grow up Catholic? You remember? Okay, a few of you. And I mean, you say this enough, you have this grilled into your head. Because you say the rosary... And maybe some of you have only seen pictures of this. It's like, it looks like a necklace, but it's not a necklace. But it has these beads on it. And when the small beads, you say one of these Hail Marys, and you say ten of those, and then you say an Our Father, and then you say ten more Hail Marys, and it just kind of uh, keeps going. And so this Hail Mary prayer, um, it's, it's this prayer that Catholics know, and that's why it's called a Hail Mary in football, because it's a desperation thing that you throw the football and that you, you just pray for a miracle to occur and somebody to catch this. So uh, the passage today is actually where part of the Hail Mary prayer actually comes from. We're going to see that. It's in verse 28 when Gabriel uh, approaches uh, Mary and greets her. The other part of it is going to be, uh, we're going to see that next time in verse 42 when Elizabeth greets Mary. And that's where he says to her, blessed are you amongst women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So in the Hail Mary prayer, it's blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. And it dawned on me that there is underwear named after the, uh, the Hail Mary. It was, it was like, there's fruit of the loom. Okay, under, 
and realized, okay, is this a coincidence? And I realized, this is not a coincidence. There's no way this could be. Okay, fruit of the womb is what is produced by the, the womb. Fruit of the loom, oh, come on. And <laughs> so... In this passage, we are going to see where the Hail Mary prayer comes from, but we are also going to see in here three things that are not just uh, improbabilities, but three things that are actually impossibilities. Three impossible things that are going to be told are going to come to pass. And I'm going to read the passage for you. I hope you have your scripture open and you can read along. And I'm not even counting the fact that an angel of the Lord, an angel comes and, and speaks to Mary. I'm not counting that one. So we're going to look at three impossible things from this passage. Okay, Luke chapter 1, starting with verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, And you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Said we're going to see three impossibilities. And the first impossibility that we're going to see is that Mary would have a child that would be the incarnate son of the Most High God. Now let's walk through this passage again and take a look at this. Verse 26, it starts off saying, in the sixth month. Now, why is this in the sixth month? Because we see later on, this connects it to Elizabeth, who we talked about last week. That um, Elizabeth the, uh, and Zechariah, relatives of uh, Mary, that he was a priest, and they were past childbearing age, and God had, a, or the, excuse me, God had sent Gabriel the angel to them as well, and told them that Elizabeth was going to have a son. This would be John, who is John the Baptist, and he would be the forerunner of Christ and preparing the way for him. And so six months, this means Elizabeth is, she's six months along at this point. 
She who should not have been able to have uh, children. So the angel Gabriel, who we saw last time, he says he's, he's, he's a high-ranking angel. Not all angels seem to be equal. He's one that he stands in the very presence of God. And he was sent to give these messages. And it says he was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now you get, even if you didn't know, you can tell here Nazareth is not a, a huge place. I mean, there are certain cities, like we have today, where you can just say, I went to Chicago. And you don't have to say, oh, I went to Chicago in northern Illinois. Because people know what you're talking about. But we've all probably had the experience where you tell someone, hey, where do you live? And you say, well, Middleville. And if they're from another state, you can't just assume they know where Middleville is as happening a place as Middleville is. And as much as they should know, you know, so you have to say, well, it's, it's near you know, Grand Rapids. Or depending on how much you think they know their geography, well, it's, it's in West Michigan. And so here, he's saying this is... Um, it's, in Nazareth, it's in, it's in Galilee. So Galilee also was, um, well, Nazareth was not a huge, big place. It didn't have a good reputation. It wasn't that big. It might not actually be that much different in population from Middleville. Uh, but it was also in, uh, it was in Galilee. So you had um, Judea, which is uh, the lower part of Israel, and that's the more sophisticated, you know, going on place. And then you had Galilee, way up in the north, kind of the kind of the UP of uh, of, of Israel there. And thinking, well, well, you know, what comes out of Galilee up there? And you have this this girl who would, for all their accounts, be completely insignificant. I mean, you don't hear about you know uh, you know Mary's best friend Susan growing up uh, because, or whatever her name was, because why would you? I mean, just a normal, you know, peasant you know, girl and nothing special about her. And the same would be true of Mary if a God hadn't decided to, to choose her and to bless her with this, this amazingly special role that she would have. So it says that the angel appears to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. It's important that he's a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So here we see a few more things that um, the angel comes. Her name is his Mary, which is a fairly common name at the time. She was a virgin. We're going to see that has a big role in this story as well, that she was uh, a young um, a young girl, she was probably in her early teens. You could be betrothed as early as, she could even be 13 or 14. So oftentimes we think of you know, Mary being older. She was probably in her early teen years. And it says she was betrothed to a man named Joseph. So betrothal was somewhat like engagement, but it was even stronger legally. So they weren't quite fully married yet. Although even some accounts, it refers to Joseph as her husband. Um, so it was, it, it was a locked-in type thing. If you wanted to break this off, you had to have a, a type of divorce uh, to break off a betrothal. But during this time, they didn't live together. They did not have sexual relations yet because they were not yet fully married. And sexual relations are to come after you're fully married. That's the way it's supposed to be. 
And so we'll see in this that Mary is um, a, a virgin, and she's this young lady that this angel suddenly appears to. And then in verse 28, he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And this is the passage that we get the Hail Mary from. Uh, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, uh, but in the older Catholic versions, and really they used uh, the Latin, but in some of those uh, editions, it would say something along the lines of, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. And hail was basically just a a greeting. It meant greetings. Um, It didn't necessarily mean, you know, hail bowing down to you or anything like that. But in the, the Hail Mary says, Mary, full of grace. Now, if we have that in our mind, that might kind of create the wrong image. It kind of creates the image that Mary has, like she's some kind of container, okay? And that she's all full of grace. And grace is like this kind of liquid. And she's full of this, and she's like a tanker truck. You know, and if you want some grace, you can come, and we'll dispense some grace to you, and, and you get this. And in some theologies, that's kind of how they view it. But that's not really what this passage is saying. So like in the ESV, it says, Greetings, O favored one. And so really what this passage is saying is not that Mary is a, 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 a repository of grace. She is a recipient of grace. Okay, Mary is the object of God's grace. This is not saying that she's a source of grace for other people. So it's God is giving her grace. God is showing her favor, saying that you have been, you have been chosen for this special task. God has, has favored you. This is not something that, is, that, is, that you deserve. This is a special honor being given to you because that's what grace means. It, it is a free gift. It is undeserved favor, undeserved high regard. So in the same way that God shows us as sinners grace, he is showing us high regard that we do not deserve, that is not owed to us. So just a few things about Mary. And Mary is a fantastic example. It's not that we should uh, scrape our Bibles away from references to Mary. That would be an overreaction. But we need to point out that the Bible, there are some things about Mary that the Bible actually never says. The Bible never says that Mary was without sin. She would have been a sinner like each of us in needing a redeemer, needing what turns out to be her son to redeem her as well. The Bible never says that Mary is able to give grace to sinners. And some other things. The Bible never says that Mary remained a virgin afterwards. She was a virgin uh, when she conceived Christ and when she bore Christ, but it never says that this was a forever thing, and it never says that we should pray to her. Now, going on in verse 29, it says, But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And she's, uh, some versions say wondered, but really it's, she's trying to figure this out. She's thinking deeply about this. An angel appears to you and you have to wonder, is this a good thing or is this a, a, a bad thing? Uh, it's kind of like when you're, you, you have to go talk to your boss and you're wondering, am I getting fired or am I getting a promotion? What kind of talk is this going to be? So she's, uh, she's wondering this. She is uh, thinking as, a, as this young woman, she's thinking, trying to figure this out. And Gabriel tells her, verse 30, 
he starts off, and angels always have to start this way, don't be afraid. This is a traumatic thing, meeting an angel. He says, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And the word there for favor, it's the same word as grace. She had found grace with God. This undeserved high regard. And when the Bible talks about grace, this, it says that we are saved by grace. It's not something that we deserve. It's something that God gives us that's a free gift. You have found favor with God. And then he says to her, he says, Behold, you will conceive a son. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, of his kingdom there will be no end. This is the first impossible thing. We're not even talking about the fact here that she's a virgin, but that she is going to have a child that would be the Son of God, the Son of the Most High. This is what we call the incarnation, that God somehow... The second person of Trinity would come down and become a genuine human being. That is a mind-blowing thing. That is something that people would have considered, well, that's impossible, that can't happen. I mean, this would not have been something Mary would have expected or any of the original uh, Jews that became the first Christians. They never thought that God could become a human being. No, there's God, there's one God, and there's this huge gulf between God and humanity, and uh, there's... God cannot become a human being. They would have never expected that. And others too, the the Hebrew, the Greeks, they would have thought, well, that can't really happen. I mean, uh, you know, you wouldn't want to contaminate, you know, God with uh, physical matter. And there's people today also that think, well, that's just ridiculous. That has to be, that has to be some kind of a myth that God would become incarnate. But look at what this verse is saying. It's saying a few things. You should. She would have this son, and his name shall be called Jesus. Jesus literally means God saves. I mean, it was not an uncommon name, but the name given had a special meaning. It does mean God saves. And you think of what he came to do. He came to save us. And it says he will be called great. The word here in Greek is, is megas. Think of mega. Jesus is going to be mega. Now when the angel talked to Elizabeth about John the Baptist, said he will be great before the Lord. And here, it just says of Jesus, he will just be great. No qualifications, just straight out, he will be great. And then, it keeps going. And he, this was where it becomes almost even more amazing. He will be called Son of of the Most High, that he would be son of God. I mean, Mary knew who he's talking about. He said, the Most High. That was a name for God Almighty. And later on, it's going to call him the Son of God as well. And it also says that he would be given the throne of his father David. That's why it's important that he was a descendant of King David. And there was promises that were given to David in 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 16, and other prophecies, part of the Davidic covenant, that he would have a descendant that would reign. And here it says that he would reign, and the, what is the length of his reign according to this passage? 
He will reign for eight years. He will reign for 40 years. His reign will be eternal. There has to be something pretty special about a person if he's going to reign forever. Because normally, I mean, Fidel Castro died this past week. And he reigned for, for decades upon decades. But eventually, you die. And it comes to an end. And with most human rulers, that's, that's a good thing. Jesus was going to reign forever. This is something that a mere human being, a mere human being, cannot do. So we have here, this is the first just impossible thing, the incarnation. And that's what, what, what Christmas is about, that the Word became flesh. And we talk about, when John talks about that, he's talking about the Word meaning the, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, taking on human form, becoming a genuine human being. Let me ask you this question. True or false? After the Incarnation, Jesus was 50% God, 50% human. False. That is correct. It is, it is correct that that is false. He's not 50% and 50%. He is 100% God. He's always been 100% God. And at the Incarnation, he also becomes 100% human as well. Now, some people say, well, that's impossible. That's, that's 200%. Well, you could, let's, you could have, let's say, a ball. Okay, let's say you have a, a perfectly round red ball. And you could say this ball is 100% red, and this ball is 100% round. Okay? It has all of the characteristics to be 100% of one and everything to be 100% of the other. And so Jesus, when he became incarnate, 100% of what it takes to be still considered God, divine, but now he's also taken on everything that is required for him to be considered genuinely human. And he had to be both to be the one that would save. That he had to be fully God for his sacrifice to be worth enough to save us. And he had to be fully human in order to save human beings. It had to be a human that would pay the price for other human beings. This is the first amazing impossible thing, the incarnation. Theologians call the hypostatic union. The union of two natures in one person in Jesus Christ. But there's more. Second impossible thing is that Mary would conceive this child as a virgin. Verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, maybe there was some other things that were said here. Sometimes the Gospels, they give us a summary of what's said because otherwise Mary might have just thought, well, yeah, okay, I'll have a child and I'm sure that what you mean is that Joseph and I were getting married and we're going to uh, have a child and great. So maybe there was something else that the angel said or somewhere she realized that he's, Gabriel is saying, no, you're, you're going to have a child now. Um, maybe the moment she said this, she knew that this had happened. We don't know exactly when it took place. But Mary understood that he was saying, you're going to have a child as a virgin. And she said, well, how, how is this going to be? I, 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 we're not fully married. We don't live together. We haven't had relations yet. 
And verse 35, And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, one thing. If you were here last week, when the angel appeared to Zechariah, he told him that you're going, to have a, you're going to have a child in your old age. Well, Elizabeth is going to have a child. That would be another kind of miracle if I guess Zechariah had a child. But, but his wife Elizabeth, he said, no, we're, we're, we're past that time. You, we're, this isn't going to happen. And he should have known that, well, God can do this. It's happened many times in the Bible. It's still pretty rare, but God can pull this off. And Zechariah was judged for this, and he was struck mute and would remain mute until... Uh, John was, was born and then named, and we're going to see that in an upcoming message. But here, Mary is asking this. There's, there's a distinction here, because she doesn't get treated the same way. And I think the, the distinction is, you can ask questions, but is it something that comes from a believing heart, or is it something that comes from a heart that's just deciding to doubt? And there might be things in the Christian life that we don't fully understand. And you know what? That can be okay. There can be things in Scripture that we struggle to... How are, there might be apparent contradictions in Scripture that we're trying to figure out, how does this work together? Things that, well, how, how did God pull this off, or why would he do this? And you can ask that from a, a skeptical heart that doesn't want to believe, or you can ask that from a believing heart that we believe we're just trying to understand. And I think that was Mary's attitude. I think she believed, but she was just trying to understand, well, well how can this be? She didn't doubt that it would happen. She was just wondering, well, how can this be the case? And there might be situations in your life, too. You know that God is going to take care of you through the hard times. You know he's going to provide for you. Maybe you're going through something that is so emotionally difficult that you wonder, how am I going to get through this? But you can ask those questions with a believing heart. And you're maybe still wondering how. And you can wait to see how God is going to deliver this. But you can ask that with a believing heart. That's different than asking that with, a, with an unbelieving heart. It's okay to ask how in a believing way. And, the, and Gabriel responds and says, this would happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Mary, as, as the mother of God, was not Christ's mother in a way that sometimes the Muslims, they don't like this, and they assume it means that God somehow had physical, intimate relations with Mary. This thing, that's not what this is like. This is a miracle thing that the Holy Spirit did this and created this new life in Mary, but it wasn't in a sexually intimate way that this happened. I think it's interesting, too. It talks about the Holy Spirit will overshadow her. And I think you get this imagery from like Genesis 1, where it talks about the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And when the Spirit was active in creation then, saying that the Holy Spirit, he's going to be active in creation here, in the beginning of a new creation that is going to be started through Jesus Christ. So we have here what's called the doctrine of the virgin birth. And more specifically, we should call it the virgin conception, because that's when when it happened. But this is an important, critical, fundamental Christian teaching. Now, I admit, I made, I made a mistake once when I was in Bible school in a theology class, and we're talking about the virgin birth. 
I made the mistake of trying to make a joke with my theology professor. And he's talking about this, and I raised my hand, and I decided to be a smart aleck. Uh, can you believe it? Me? Okay. And I said to him, I don't understand why there's so much controversy about the virgin birth. Of course, when Jesus was born, he was a virgin. And the, I don't think the professor understood, and he went on for a half hour about the importance of the virgin birth. And I'm like, I'm not doubting this. And I'm looking at my classmates saying, I'm sorry. <laughs> but the truth of the virgin birth there are people that, that doubt this. They think this is mythical. This must have been added to Scripture. Or, you know, we're too sophisticated. This type of thing just couldn't happen. But do you know who should have the most difficulty believing this? Believing in a virgin birth? How about Luke? He was a physician. Okay, if there's anyone that should have known how this works, it'd be a medical doctor who wrote... The, the Gospel of Luke and is telling us this? I mean, even Mary, this young girl, she knows enough about the birds and bees to know how this works and how she shouldn't be having a child. A medical doctor, of course, he would know this. And he is the one testifying to this and telling us this. It's also in the book of Matthew as well. I was, I was talking with a young person who came to me and uh, said he was having a real tough time believing in the virgin birth. That uh, he, we talked about all kinds of things over the years about apologetics, about reasons to believe that God is the creator and uh, that he must have designed life and nothing else makes sense as far as creation of the world and uh, that God had to be the intelligent designer behind life and all this. And he said, but I'm having trouble with the virgin birth. He said, that just doesn't make sense because you need the genetic material from a man and from a woman for this to work. I said, well, I get that, but let me ask you a question. I said, do you believe that God is the, the creator? That he made the heavens and the earth? That he made everything? And this young person said, oh, yeah. I mean, there's too many reasons. And he started launching into all these things that, that we had talked about in the past. You know, there, there couldn't be an you know, uncaused you know, earth and all these things where well, evolution just doesn't work and there had to be an intelligent design. And oh, I'm thoroughly committed that God is the creator of everything. I said, well, think... You admit that. God created the whole world out of, out of nothing and designed all this. And you're having trouble believing that God could create uh, Jesus with, with just one parent? He said, oh, yeah. If, if I can believe in the, the big deal thing, the virgin birth is not that tough. It is a miracle. Okay, this is not a normal thing that could happen. It is an impossibility. Okay, for a... I know today, maybe through different fertilization techniques, they could have a woman become pregnant without uh, normal sexual relations. But without the contribution of, of a man somewhere, that, that's not what can happen. This is an impossibility. But if you believe that God can do all these other things, I mean, this was easier than God creating Adam. Okay, Adam didn't have any parents. He's just making him from the dust of the ground. So if you can accept creation, you can accept the virgin birth. Let me say this. If you can accept the incarnation, that God could become a human being, you can accept the virgin birth. If you can accept the resurrection, that Jesus would be raised from the dead on the third day, you can accept the virgin birth. And let me just say, if you don't believe those other things, 
you're not really a Christian. Because these are core fundamental truths. And it's possible because with God, nothing is impossible. Some people say, well, if, if the virgin birth was scriptural, why isn't it in Scripture more? Why isn't it all throughout the New Testament? Well, how many times does it need to be in the New Testament? Let me give you a few things to consider. Matthew and Luke both reference the virgin birth, and these are the only two places that describe the birth narrative in detail, and they are unanimous about it. There could be a reference in Galatians 4.4, 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. I mean, so if Paul disagreed with Luke, why would he point out born of a woman in that specific way? There's no author in the New Testament that denies or contradicts the virgin birth or the virgin conception. If it was a legend, Others could have contradicted it. John, when he wrote his gospel, he could have set the record straight. And Luke was Paul's traveling companion. And it's really unlikely that the two of them would have disagreed about something this important. What's the significance of the virgin birth? Let me give you four things. The virgin birth or the virgin conception was a sign that this was something special from God. Miracles authenticate messengers. And this was one that from the beginning would authenticate that this baby, there's something way special about him. And it's also Matthew, especially Matthew 1, 22, 23, especially sees this as fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 7, 14. Two, the virgin conception supports the sinlessness of Jesus. And we know from Scripture that Jesus was sinless. That's so important. Hebrews 4.15 says that he, he is our high priest. He's like us in every way except yet without sin. 1 Peter 2.22 says he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. You know that a few years ago, George Barna took a survey And according to the survey, 40% of supposedly born-again young people said that they believe that Jesus committed sins like anyone else. I have to doubt that someone is, is genuinely saved yet if they believe that their Savior is a sinner. You can't have a, a sinful Savior If you are in the ocean and you are drowning and you are going down, you cannot be rescued by someone else that is drowning. You need someone that is not drowning to rescue you. That's why none of us can be a savior for each other because we are all drowning in sins. We are all sinners. We need someone that is, is not drowning. We need a sinless savior. And the virgin birth, it ties into that. The virgin conception is probably kind of like a firewall keeping Jesus from being contaminated by sin nature. Being, uh, it kept him from being corrupted by the sin of Adam. So Adam's sinful nature was neither inherited by Jesus nor was Adam's sin imputed to Jesus. 
Three, the virgin conception shows that Christ was the beginning of a new humanity. This is the beginning of a new creation, a new humanity. Jesus came into this world. He wasn't in Adam. In Adam is death. In Adam is condemnation. And ever since Adam, it says he bore a son in his own image. And down the line, we come into this world in Adam, in his sin. But Jesus is the beginning of this new humanity, humanity 2.0. He's a new head of the new human race. And by giving him this special birth, points that out. And number four, I think also the virgin conception, I think easily points to the two natures of Christ. Now, God could have done it different ways, but if Jesus had two human parents, it would be way too easy to think of him as just being a mere human being without being fully God. However, the fact that he didn't have a human father, that God was his father, it it makes it fairly easy for us to understand that one of the things that's special about him is he's fully human and he's also fully God. One commentator said, fallen humanity could not produce its own savior. It had to come from somewhere outside by way of definitive, divine, by way of divine initiative and intervention. You'd be called holy. He is sinless, set apart, and the son of God. See, too, he's superior over John the Baptist. Elizabeth conceived John in her old age. Okay, that's a miracle. Mary conceives Jesus as a virgin. John would be filled with the Spirit. Jesus would be conceived by the Spirit. John would be great before the Lord. Jesus would be just great without qualification. Verse 36, God says that through, um, through Gabriel, Mary is told, and behold, your relative in her old age has conceived a son. Mary hadn't asked for a sign, but she was given one that, hey, here's a sign, <laughs> that this is, this is for real. You have this relative. She's six months along. God's doing some special things here. For, verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Let me give you the third impossible thing. It's simply that Mary believed this. And then Mary submitted herself to God. Verse 37, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The angel departed from her. And you say, well, that's not really impossible. She just, she was a good person. You know what? You know what Scripture says? Scripture says that without God doing something decisive and miraculous in us, None of us would believe at all. God had to be at work in your heart to cause you to believe. What does it say about the person that is without, that is not yet a Christian? 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It's the fact that Mary believed this. The fact that she accepted the is a miracle. And the fact that any of us are Christians is a miracle. And if you're honest, you look back at your life and you say, the direction I was going, I shouldn't be a Christian. You can give glory to God that he stepped in. Same way he stepped into Paul when he was on the road uh, breathing threats against the Christians, going to persecute him. 
He did that to all of us. The miracle to make us into Christians. And just that she submitted herself in this way. This type of obedience. This is a fruit of the Spirit. This is something that God does. This isn't from herself. God produced this in and through her. And the same way when we obey God, that's God working through us. And if you are a genuine Christian, God is going to be working in you. And he's going to be changing your heart in a way that shows that this is miraculous intervention in your life. Causing you to care about things you would have never cared about before. Causing you to obey even in hard times, even in impossible times to do this. Think of Mary's submission. It makes us think about our own attitude. Are you willing to obey anything the Bible says to do, whether you like it or not? Are you willing to trust God in anything that he sends our way, whether we, whether we understand it or not? You realize that most things are only impossible if you take God out of the picture. These are impossibilities, but with God, they are possible. How many of you think it's impossible for this, this candle here on stage to just, to just raise off the ground? Well, watch this. Oh. Now you're thinking, well, you made that happen. Well, yeah, I did. It's the same thing with God. It's not impossible. He just, he makes it happen. And so there's things in your life, just the same as the incarnation, the same as the virgin birth. It's only impossible if you take God out of the picture. Keep God in the picture. Let me close with this. It's a quote from Charles Spurgeon. There is our answer to all questions. With God, all things are possible. If I inquire, how can he deliver me? Nothing is impossible with God. How can he keep me to the end? Nothing is impossible with God. How can he persevere me amidst persecution? How can he keep me from temptation and preserve me from the world, the flesh, and the devil? Nothing is impossible with God. Fling yourself upon omnipotence and you shall be strong. May the Holy Spirit help you to do this for Christ's sake. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you and we confess that with you nothing is impossible. What you have done and how you cause us to live is only impossible if we take you out of the picture. Let us come before you with believing hearts, realizing that what you have said in Scripture is possible because of you and the things that you call us to do, to follow you, to believe, to serve you, are possible because of you. May you receive our faith and our praise of our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen.